Almighty God and Father in heaven, you provide for us. You love us. You are the fountain of all being, blessing, and love. We confess this morning our constant attempts to reign and rule over our own lives, even in our own relationships, as if they belong to us and as if we can order them according to our limited knowledge, our assumed wisdom. You have ordered our days, not us. You know best for us. We gather here this morning and now turn our attention to hear your word, the word of Christ Jesus set before us. And we pray that you will grant us your spirit, that we might humbly bow to this word of yours. Reveal our rebel hearts when we sit here as if we are called to evaluate or even be a judge over the value of your word. And instead, help us, Father, that we may assess and understand the worth of your word for what it is, the very words of God. And that we may not seek to align your word with our self-made values, ideals, or even idols. Lord Jesus, grant faith this morning for us, for this is a great gift that we may know you, that we may trust in you, and that we might be willingly and joyfully able to receive your word this morning as those who adorn the fruit of the Spirit, that we might live with our great joy and hope to dwell in your presence in peace and the blessing that only your hand can provide. We ask these things, Father. We ask these things from you, for in many ways we don't even understand or know or comprehend fully what these things could possibly be if you granted them. And so we ask that you will do them for us and that we might receive the blessing that can only come from your hand. For it's in his most blessed name we pray. Amen. Amen. So look with me at your Bibles. This is what Peter, the author of this letter, 1 Peter, is seeking to do. He's warning us to fix our hope, to set our hope in something other than the things of this world. And the reason is because those who were he's writing to were scattered. They were cast away from their homes, their possessions, their things. And so he's wanting to, them to understand that they need to have a hope, but not any hope. Look with me, if you will, in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. Being born again, he wants us to have not a dead, stagnant, uh, set aside in a corner of our lives kind of hope, but a living, a living, vibrant hope. Do you see that there in verse 3? As those who are born again, he's calling these saints and us today to have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ there in verse 3 of chapter 1. He's calling us to live not for the things of this world. We so often, even inadvertently, we, if, if we give ourselves um, some, some comfort or some um, leeway and we kind of kick our lives into neutral, we're going to be apt to place our hopes in things that we can see and feel and touch and have. And Peter here is saying, if you place your hope in those, that's a bad place to place your hope. Why? Because those things will perish They will be defiled, they will fade away, and they're kept 
only here in heaven, which is not our permanent place. Instead, we're exiles passing through this world. We're going somewhere that is permanent. And so in verse 4, he says that we have this inheritance. With this living hope, we hope in this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, not by our own strength, is being guarded through faith for salvation. So we are to be pursuing this living hope. He goes on, and we see in verse 13 of chapter 1. He doesn't say, well, okay, now just pursue this living hope. Have this living hope. And that's very ethereal. There's not, there's not real, anything real tangible for us to understand exactly what that means. What does it look like tangibly? How, does it, how do I live out my life so that I am grasping or clinging to this, this living hope? He says in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, notice, set your hope, not partially, not on occasion, not here and there sporadic, but notice in verse 13, set your hope fully, fully and absolutely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your hope and my hope, even this morning, started diverting. It wasn't fully it began wanting to be uh, scattered, duplicitous. Our hopes want to be here and there and in many places. Don't put all of your eggs in one basket, because if you do, you lose the basket. You lost everything. What Peter is saying here is, yes, put all of your eggs in one basket. If that basket is held and kept and preserved by the Lord Jesus Christ, then it is secure. It is good. Now, if I gave you this task this morning and said, I want you to think about Pray about, consider, how do I live out this living hope? How do, I, how do I make it vibrant and a part of my every aspect of my life? How do I, according to verse 13, set my hope fully on the grace that we brought to me at Revelation to Jesus Christ? And I said, okay, make a list of tasks that you need to do this week. Put some things on your calendar of how you might do this. Now, now begin living this out and doing this. That's not what Peter does here. What Peter does here is he says, not only are you supposed to be living together, careful as God's people, um, uniquely living at holy lives, loving one another, loving God's people. That's what he speaks of in chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 2, verse 10. He talks about how we're unique, distinct people living in a certain way that we are according to chapter 2, verse uh, verse 6. We're, behold, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, chapter uh, 2, verse 5. You yourselves are living stones being built up as spiritual houses, uh, holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. He's talking about the fact that they are being built up as God's people, unique in this way, live in the midst of God's people, holy lives, loving one another. And then he turns and he is helping us understand how do we then, how do we then begin seeing the ways that we're placing our hope in this world and not in God. He says the way we do that is when the authorities that are in our lives in this world, when they begin pressing on us, when they begin pushing on our lives, it will reveal to us whether we're trying to live for this world and, our, and, and the things that are in this world or we're placing our hopes here. When our authorities begin pressing on us, the earthly authorities that we have, they're going to expose the things that, we, that our hearts are clinging to, the things that our hearts are wanting to hope in. And that's a good thing, though it's hard. He says it's even, it's even suffering. He speaks of being subject, chapter 2, verse 13, being subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, the first one being 
this political entity, this political authority. And he speaks of the fact that when they press against us, how we respond, whether we are subjecting to them faithfully and rightly, this will expose what we're placing our hearts' hopes in, as well as in our daily vocations, the vocational authorities. Verse 18 here, servants, be subject to your masters. Chapter 2, verse 18, with all respect. Now, not only to the good and gentle, those, those, those masters are not as apt to expose the things that we're placing our heart in, our hope in. But instead, he says, not only to the good and gentle, verse 18, but also the unjust. Now, if we are sub- subject to the unjust master, when we are employed or we have authorities in our lives, and they are unjust, not, not righteous, not good, and they begin calling on us, and telling us to do things that we do not prefer, or causing us to um, not have the things that our hearts want, then, then we'll see what our hopes are, are clinging to. And Peter is saying, in these regular, ordinary ways that we live, it is exposing the things that our hearts are hoping in, so that we can better be able to have a living hope, according to chapter 1, verse 3, and be able to set our hope fully on the grace that we brought to us at Revelation of Jesus Christ and not set our hope on our job, our income, our relationships, our marriage, our things, our stuff, our vacations, our comforts. We, we can't set our hearts on those. When our authorities begin pushing on those, putting their finger on those, taking those things away, we will lash back unless our hope is in the one true God. Unless our hope is fully and absolutely set in the grace that we reveal to us in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, know this, that even this morning, even this morning and throughout this past week, the Lord has placed you in circumstances and situations where what you were hoping in, what you are hoping in, was exposed. They were brought forward. You were able to see them for what they were. And you were able to ask the question, am I hoping in Christ? Am I hoping in the revelation of of Christ when he comes and reveals himself? Or am I placing my hopes in the things of this world? Now, we move from, as it says in chapter 2, verse 13, being subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, the political institutions and authorities, verses 13 through 17, the vocational institutions and authorities, verses 18 through the end of verse to the end of uh, chapter 2. And now this morning we're going to be addressing one of the more intimate of the authorities that Peter is trying to encourage this church. And he's saying, here is another realm. Here's another place where in an everyday, ordinary way, your hopes will be exposed when the authorities that are in your home begin pressing on those. Is that true? Doesn't that happen? The Lord does. He places people in our homes that drive us crazy, right? They push our buttons. They make us ask the question, why, Lord, did you put this person in front of me? It's for your sanctification. It's for your being more like Christ. It's so that you can see the hopes that you're placing your heart in. I just want a quiet, peaceful home. That's all I want. Doesn't the Lord want that for me? Well, obviously not. Obviously not. The Lord has placed you in that home with all the things that are around you to expose your hopes, your idols, the things that you're clinging to. And asking, and I'm asking you this morning, is your hope a living hope? Is your hope 
fully set on the grace that brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Or is it set on that person that you're living with doing what I tell them to do? I can only love those people that I can control. I can only control these people. And as long as I can control you, then I'm going to love you. If I can't control you, then I'm going to set you outside of my, my realm of influence. The Lord says here that he's placed people in our lives to push us to the parameter of our lives, to expose our idols and the things we hope in. And this morning, he's bringing us to the most intimate, the intimate place or realm of authority here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And that is the relationship or the realm of the home, wives and husbands. Wives and husbands. And this morning, we're going to consider this authority, this familial or family authority between a husband and a wife here in these verses. And the outline is going to be very straightforward. Two points this morning. And you'll see them right here. Look with me at verses 1 through 7. As I hope it's laid all on one page on your, in your Bible as it is mine. We can see all the text right here before us. Verses 1 through 7, two points. Point number one, wives be subject. Verses 1 through 6. Point number two, husbands be understanding. Now, it's wonderful when the points are what the text says, right? I'm not saying anything beyond what the text is saying. but We're going to dig a little deeper here. We have six verses for wives be subject. That's verses 1 through 6. And then we have one verse for husbands be understanding. This is verse 7. Is that because Peter, uh, Peter was hammering the ladies? Felt like they were more of the problem than not? Not at all. Instead, Peter here was wanting to equip these ladies. Notice, if you, if you look, what is he doing here in our text, in the context? Look with me here. The, the very text itself, verses 1 through 6, there's a lot there about how wives are to submit to their husbands. And then only one verse for husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Why is that? Well, notice with me the context here, the whole frame of what we're looking at in the book. He's saying, Peter is calling them to, for those who are, who those are under authority, those who are under authority, to submit to the authorities in their lives. And he's been focusing on, for example, in this case, those who are um, in, the, uh, in the arena of the government to submit to their authorities, the emperor, in this case, the governors there in verses 13 and 14. And he spends time talking about how we, as those under this authority, are to submit to that. And then he speaks to servants there in verse 18. And he talks about there how these servants are to be submissive to their masters. He doesn't really speak about the masters. He says, you as servants are supposed to be uh, submitting to this and being faithful in this regard. And so in this way, Peter is being very kind and gracious. He's equipping these ladies, these wives. He's equipping us this morning, ladies and wives. He's equipping us to know how we can live in a world where the authority that the Lord has given to you is broken and sinful. It has the effects of sin all over it. And so here what Peter is doing is he's seeking to help um, these wives to be faithful. And specifically in our case, as we notice here in chapters, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, how they can be faithful, especially if they are under the authority of a husband that does not trust in Christ, that is not hoping in this, in fully hoping or, or hoping with this lot, a lot living hope in Christ himself. So here we'll see that we have the marriage relationship of the wife and the husband, but the real focus is to encourage the wife who is living under this difficult authority of an unbelieving husband 
and helping, he's helping her know how she can be faithful as a wife under these very difficult circumstances. However, today is not going to be about fathers because of the American holiday. That wouldn't be appropriate. This is the Lord's Day. That's what we're celebrating. Nor can today be only about wives and husbands, because there's some here that are neither one of these things. Today, this is about looking at God's Word and asking Him to show us how we might be faithful in the relationships that He's given to us. And in this case, He's giving us a paradigm, an example of what these closest relationships may look like and how we can be faithful in them. And I believe that as we go through this text, looking at wives and husbands, all of us will benefit from it as we learn to be faithful and to hope in our Savior instead of the things, and specifically the relationships that are around us. So look with me first as we notice point number one. Wives, be subject. Wives, be subject. How are wives, then, to set their hope on Christ? How are they to do that? Peter explains that they are to do so by being subject to their own husbands. That's how they're to set their hope on Christ. It might be easily overlooked here as we look at this passage and as we notice these first few words here, it might be easily overlooked how um, specific and precise Peter is being here. Peter is not, for example, giving a broad truth or principle saying, all men or all women should be submissive to all men. He's not saying that at all. But instead, what Peter is saying here, he's being very specific, and we can see it here in our text. Likewise, wives, be subject, notice what it says, to your own husbands, to the authority that's in your life, to the authority that God has given to you, because this is the husband that God has given to you. And so, it is your own husband, wives, that you are to be submissive to, that you are to be um, obedient to, to be, uh, and, and that husband alone is the one who has the authority in your life to have this authority to be able to speak into your life. And now I'd like for us to notice here in verses 1 through 7, and I'd like for us to see this call to subjection, to being submissive, has, has three areas that I want us to notice. Three areas under, these, under this heading, wives be subject. One is the reason for the subjection. This is verses 1 through 2, the reason for this subjection. Verses 3 and 4 is an aim, an aim for this subjection. And then finally, in verses 5 through 6, I want us to notice an example of this subjection. A reason, verses 1 and 2, an aim, verses 3 and 4, and an example, verses 5 and 6. I think you can see the reason quite clearly if you notice with me as I read verses 1 and 2. And I want you to notice this phrase, so that, as I read. So that is a phrase that indicates that Peter here is giving us a reason why wives are to be subject to their own husbands. Listen with me in verses 1 through 2. Follow along with me in your Bibles. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that... Even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. We need to recognize here, as we begin looking at verses 1 and 2, the eternal value that Peter is placing on this very difficult task. 
We do not want to underestimate the fact that Peter calling these wives to be subject to their own husbands, especially as we're going to see in a moment, many of them were not believers, is a very difficult calling for them. This is not something that's going to be easy for them. They were not sitting there saying, yes, that's exactly what I want to do. Their hearts were just as rebellious as ours in our day. And so he is giving here a very important eternal value, and he's placing it upon this action. Our text does not say then that the, if, if you're subject to your husbands, they will be nicer. They will be more agreeable. They may even pick up their dirty clothes or be more loving. He doesn't say any of that. All of those things might be nice and wonderful indeed, but they're subjective and temporary, right? Instead, what Peter is saying is Peter is here speaking of a husband that is not a believer, a husband that does not hope in Christ, a husband that does not obey or follow after the gospel. That's what it means here when it says some do not obey the word or the message of the gospel. That's what it's speaking of here. They're not trusting in Christ. These husbands are not. This is a very difficult circumstance. During Peter's day, the gospel was going forward. And this was not a situation where there were ladies marrying those men who were not believers. That wasn't the case at all. But more than likely, what was happening in the church during this time early on is that these women were hearing the gospel, these wives were hearing the gospel, and they were coming to faith in Christ, and their husbands were not. Now, in that case, during this time, what was most often assumed and practiced was that the wife did not have the ability to have her own faith, but instead was called to bow to the deities and gods of of the husband during that day. And so the wife wasn't able to have her own faith and her own religion. She was supposed to follow after the, 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 the faith of her home or her household. She was supposed to live for her husband's religion, faith, golf clubs, boat, Jaguars, I'm, I'm, get, I'm meddling now, right? I'm meddling now. So we, we, act like, we act like that's strange. It's a weird world. Why would that woman just submit to whatever the husband's doing and all the deities that he has? No, no, they're just different deities. And we call them these things today. And it's assumed that the home will bow to the deities of the man in the home. That's very common. But notice what Peter's saying here. He's saying... The home for the institution that a husband and wife is, for as amazing as it is, one of the first, it was the first instituted, Adam and Eve coming together, right? For as important as that is, it, it, it does not trump the marriage relationship, the family relationship does not trump Christ. Christ is superior over even the authority of the husband. And that needs to be re- remembered and understood very clearly. In this way, Christianity calls wives to trust in Christ even when the husband chooses not to believe or even treat her harshly if she chooses to believe because Christ is worth it. And though this creates much hardship and struggle in the marriage, the scriptures give clear instruction about how this is supposed to happen. 1 Corinthians 7.13 says, If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Why? Because she's a believing wife. Now, back to 1 Peter 3.1. The truth in our text 
is quite astonishing that Peter's trying to set forward here. It's, it's very unusual. It may not sound as unusual or astonishing upon our ears because we've, we've lost this concept or this truth largely in our society today and especially among evangelicalism and churches today. But notice this. It says this. This verse gives this submissive wife a unique promise that is glorious, that, that is beautiful. The Lord, and this is the promise that the Lord's giving through Peter to these wives that are submissive to husbands that are not believers. He's giving them this promise. The Lord can use a wife's, a wife's wordless, humble submission as a means to bring her husband to trust in Christ. Now, that's what it means here in our passage when it says, Be one without a word by your conduct. Be one means be converted without a word from the wife. She's not verbally attacking her husband or constantly badgering him about the gospel or constantly calling him to repentance. But instead, by her conduct, she can do this. Now, this is unusual. Today, that's not the case. Today in our society, today in, in evangelicalism, today in the church, the idea is that, um, what was it, uh, the, this, uh, Francis Assisi, I think, was the one that was attributed with this quote, but we can't find where he actually said this. And it says, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Have you ever heard that quote before? We don't know if he actually said that or not. But, but that, that, that has never been what the church has taught. Now, we are to live godly lives, yes. But the gospel being declared without the words and the message of the gospel being set forward is not a gospel. It's a testimony. And people aren't saved by testimonies. They're saved by gospel presentations. Now, that sounds really odd to our ears today. We think, well, if somebody gives a testimony, then I might... Well, then what happens when the Mormon gives his testimony? And it's more convincing. No, the gospel saves Testimonies don't save. Lifestyles don't save. But here, the Lord is giving a unique promise to this precious wife that's submitting to her husband and saying, because he's the authority in your home, Peter here is giving a promise from the Lord, saying that by her wordless testimony, the way she lives her life, the Lord will, in this unique situation, use her virtuous life to bring conversion to the husband. And that she needs to hope and pray for that as she is living in this difficult circumstance. This is shocking because throughout the history of the church and all over our Bible, we find that the ordinary way, or what we call in this church, the ordinary means by which men and women and boys and girls come to faith in Christ is not by seeing a life lived, but instead by hearing the gospel preached. You all are very familiar with this, this passage that I'm getting ready to read from Romans where Paul says, so faith comes from hearing, right? Faith comes from hearing. That's how, that's how faith is inaugurated. That's how faith springs up is by hearing. And hearing, hearing what? You can't just talk about any and everything. You just can't just give your testimony, talk about how wonderful everything is. Faith comes from hearing and specifically Hearing through the word of Christ. This word, this idea for word of Christ, it's not the same idea of just simply spoken word. This idea for word of Christ is the proclaimed or declared word of God. So the gospel 
is a message that needs to be declared. The word of Christ is a word. It's a message that is to be declared and heard in order for faith to, be, to spring up. The gospel message the gospel message is one of our one true and living God who is creator of everything, including each and every one of you. He created each of us and all that is in the world, even all of our relationships. He created us as relational beings. He's the one that created marriage and defined it, not the Supreme Court. The Lord our Father created man and woman, Adam and Eve. To live in a perfect garden with perfect communion with God and each other. There, in that garden, Adam's loving leadership and Eve's humble submission was perfect. And it existed there as well. Read. These things, these things were given to Adam and Eve before sin entered the world. So these aren't bad consequences. Men's leadership, ladies' submission. That wasn't bad consequences of, the, of sin. No, that was just harmed and deteriorated because of sin. This was the perfect way that the Lord had set up relations between a man and a woman. They were in perfect submission. This was perfect, this, this leadership of the man, loving leadership, this perfect submission, this humble submission of the woman was perfect, satisfying, and very good in the garden. And all of that was destroyed by Adam's sin. And since then... Relationships and marriage have been everywhere and in many ways broken. Relationships, and specifically marriage, is more of a heavy burden than a blessing today. And sadly, relationships and even marriage has gotten so bad, and this happened early on, it got so bad that marriage and relationships, and specifically marriage I'm speaking of here, not only broken, not only a heavy burden, but marriage became brutal. Brutal. This is not how the Lord intended us to live. So out of the Father's love for us, He sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to live in the midst of a people. He didn't live off in a commune somewhere. He didn't live off by himself. He lived with crowds around him and related to people and loved people and served people and cared for people. Out of the Father's love for us, he perfectly and righteously lived and then he went to the cross to bear the wrath that we earned because of our sin on his body so that by faith in Christ, his wounds, his scars, by them we might be healed. We might be healed from the overwhelming misery that we have plunged ourselves into as we seek to relate to one another, and specifically in our marriages today, when we repent, when we repent of our determination and desire to live trusting our own authority, living for our own kingdom, when we repent of that, and when we trust in Christ to bear our sin and to free us from the wounds of sin that keep us enslaved, when we do that, we have accepted and received the message of the gospel. 
this message of the gospel declared is how any and all will come to faith in Christ. Our Baptist Catechism says, says it this way. It couldn't be more clear. Question and answer 94. The Spirit of God makes the reading. This is our catechism. Question, answer 94. The Spirit of God makes the reading, but listen, but especially the preaching of the Word an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. This is what the Word of God read and preached accomplishes. It has, it's the effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and then building all of those who are in Christ up so that we may grow in our faith unto salvation. And yet, and yet, I want you to notice this. this I want to linger here because I want us to understand this. And yet, here in our text in 1 Peter, or excuse me, yes, 1 Peter chapter 3, in our text, Peter is saying that, uh, that the, the, the submissive wife has been given a unique promise and encouragement that through her difficulty of being faithful, sometimes extremely difficult circumstances, when she is a submissive wife, she can live before her God knowing that the Lord very well may use her life, her wordless testimony, to bring her husband to faith. It says here, when this submissive wife lives before her unfaithful husband, notice what it says here, with respect and pure conduct. She has a unique influence to commend her husband to the gospel unlike anyone else can do. We need to understand that this is a unique responsibility, but also a unique place that this wife has to commend her husband to the gospel in a way that no one else is able to do. She is to respect. This word actually comes from the idea of fear, and it speaks of not living in fear of the husband, but living in fear of the Lord. You remember a couple weeks ago, I made the comment that First Peter over and over again speaks of how we're not to fear man, but we're always to fear the Lord. We're, live, we're to live with wisdom out of a fear for the Lord. So respect here speaks of living as one who is fearing God and seeing his favor and approval as the primary place that you're seeking that approval and that favor. You're not trying to seek approval and favor from your husband but instead from the Lord, and you're fearing Him and Him alone. Not only respect, but it goes on and says pure conduct. This speaks of living a life of integrity, not a life that is deceptive or dishonest, a life that is seeking to undermine or harm one's husband or seeking his own comfort or pursuits. I will say that there are wives that may be sitting here this morning. You are very much unhappy with the leadership of your husband. And so you, not outright and clearly and out front, but behind the scenes, you know how to sabotage things. That is not living in pure conduct. That is not being faithful or respectful. You're not living under the fear of the Lord. You're living with your own passions and desires as your, as your ends. So wives, so wives... What good reasons have you come up with in your heart, because all of you have, to not submit to your husband? Because every, every wife here, I'm assuming today, is a sinner. So you've, you've made those deductions in your, in your heart. What good reasons, quote-unquote, 
have you come up with for not needing to submit to your husband? Know that however you might have come to those conclusions, in any of those conclusions, you're not living with respect towards your God, fear of God, nor are you living in subjection to your husband that God has given to you. Wives, what ways have you attempted to manipulate or even sway your husband, either to trust in Christ or maybe even more so here in this context this morning, to encourage your husband to be more faithful, right? Not to faith that your husband may be a believer, but to try to manipulate or sway your husband toward faithfulness in a certain way, twisting and turning things, manipulating. Know that when you do this, you're not living with the pure conduct that is being called of you here before your husband. So this is, uh, this is the first point, the reason. The reason we are, the reason wives are to submit to their husbands is so that their husbands may may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Notice with me now verses 3 and 4, and let us look at the aim of the wife's subjection. The aim of the wife's subjection, verses 3 and 4. Follow with me in your Bibles so you can see what's being said there. These are God's words. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This call to modesty and to avoid the extravagance of clothing and jewelry is given not here, as we've noticed, and sometimes we want to aim it and just kind of make it very, very, uh, very close or very, very uh, particular. This is not simply saying this is how you're to adorn yourself when you come to church. This is saying this is how godly women are to live in everyday lives, day in and day out. This is how they're to adorn themselves. So if we try to divide this up and say, well, church is one thing, and this is how God wants me to dress and and live and and, and present myself. And then when I'm in the world, I can present myself in any way I, I want to. That is not true. Here we see that this is being spoken of generally and not under the under the um, umbrella of coming and gathering in church. So this is not a narrow, narrowly directed, but it is broadly directed to all godly women. Women in every generation have sought to be noticed and to be attractive. They know that Women know that that is a gift that the Lord has given to them. They are beautiful and attractive. The Lord has made them that way from Adam and Eve on. It is important to see the contrast in our text here, the contrast between verse 3 and verse 4. Contrast between verse 3 and verse 4. The contrast between the external, verse 3, and the internal, verse 4. The external adorning, verse 3. The the internal adorning, verse 4. And godly women are to be more concerned with one's inner or hidden person, according to our passage. However, we need to be careful here because it's easy for us then to jump over and, and, and go too far in one direction. It is clear that this does not mean, this does not mean that the external is to be ignored or excluded. So some read this passage then and would say, well, then 
There should be no braiding of hair, no jewelry, and no clothes. You see what's happening there. If you take that text and go with, it means none of those, now you now you've just went in the wrong direction. Because the last one, we all know, is not what, what is being spoken of here. The idea here is not that these things are to be excluded or ignored, that is the externals, but instead they're to be not prioritized. They're not to be prioritized. This verse is not forbidding the brushing of our hair or the wearing of jewelry or having clothes that are nice and decent. 1 Timothy 2.9 even explicitly states clearly, that woman, speaking of the woman that's in church, that woman should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. Respectable apparel. So the point is to not give all your time and energy, or at least most of your time and energy, to those things that you would put on or to wear. That is not where your priority should be. Now, check your own heart. Check your own apps on your phone. Check your own places that you go and that your mind lingers in. Is it places that is feeding your soul to be a more godly woman? Or do you spend your money and your time and your energy trying to cover up the outside and the external things? So here we see it says that we're to be not prioritizing the external, but instead giving our attention, the majority of our attention, and prioritizing the feeding and fostering of the, etern- the internal, and that is, according to our passage, it says, but let your adorning, verse 4, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, feeding your soul, feeding your character, allowing God's word to shape your life. Those external things will perish and fade away, is what our passage says, and can not finally adorn you. There will be a day when no matter how much you try to put on externally, you will not be able to cover the consequences of sin, of aging, and death around the corner. But instead, ladies here in our congregation, it says here we need to have, we need, they need to be gentle and have a quiet spirit. These things will not fade or perish, but they will grow with age and they'll become more precious and beautiful. Being gentle and quiet-spirited is something that will not fade away, but only become more beautiful and attractive as the years go by. Then give yourself to those things. I would encourage you in way of just thinking through this, ladies, in way of the time you spend in prayer, the time you spend pouring over God's Word, and then the time you spend trying to get dressed or have something to wear. Evaluate those things. Measure them rightly and faithfully. These qualities, these qualities of gentle and quiet spirit are not being fostered in our society today. Is that true? Um, The roaring and raging female is what is fostered and lauded today. The foolishness of our generation, the outspokenness and the um, individualism of feminism is more in our thoughts. And I'm not talking about our society. I'm talking about in this room, in this building. The feminism and the, and the individualism of our culture has indoctrinated us. And we need to be careful 
Because we are apt to begin going down that road, realizing, not realizing that we are actually going down a philosophy that's anti-godly. So, this is why we must, as a congregation, lovingly, want you to hear me carefully, I'm, I'm reading slowly so you can hear me, lovingly and graciously encourage and pray for and example such qualities here among the ladies in our congregation. Most of you ladies did not grow up with a biblical paradigm of womanhood. You grew up in homes and in a culture and in families that did just the opposite. And so we are all in different places in growing and learning about these things. And the important thing is not that we're just stubborn to say, I'm going to be where I'm at no matter what, but instead for all of us, or be upset that that person's not where I'm at, right? But instead for all of us to bring one another along and encourage each other toward faithfulness that we might be ladies that exemplify and example this gentle and quiet spirit to those who are in our congregation and especially for the younger ladies and little girls that are among us. So many of you ladies did not grow up with this, and so we are all to be learning and growing, praying for each other, encouraging each other, asking each other how to be discipled. That's why we need a congregation. That's why we need each other to help each other in this way, to turn away from the foolish things that the world wants us to desire and want and have. Um, and, and know this, this is the case no matter if you're a lady or a man. If you put your finger on my idol, I'm apt to kill you for it because I don't like you putting a finger on my idol. But when you became a member of this church, that's what you signed up for. Not that we're all going to be jerks to one another, but that we're all going to be carefully moving and encouraging and pointing each other to Christ and asking, is this something that you need to give to Christ or is this something that you're going to constantly cling to because it's not something to put your hope in? Now, let me turn real quick as well to explain that the world's going to be constantly, every single advertisement, everything that comes before our little girls' hearts and eyes is promoting something very different than what scriptures speak of here. Um, Look at almost every single children's movie that's out there. It's usually starring a young lady that's independent and coming to her own and kicking against the system that refuses to let her be anything she wants to be. That's ungodly. That's feminism. That's not scripture. That's Disney. And we need to call it out for what it is. Husbands and dads, we're called to pray for wisdom and to faithfully encourage our wives and daughters in this way. Why? Why are we to do this? I know what I'm asking you to do, husbands. I know that this conversation never ends well. I know when you address a daughter in your house about the pants she's wearing, that there's going to be a fight. And you're going to be the most hated person in the home and likely on that block, right? That's what we're called to as husbands. But why would we do it? Look at the end of our verse here. Don't take, don't take my words for it which in God's sight is very precious. Are you going to please the people in your home? Are you going to please the people that are around you? Are you going to please family members, co-workers, your own heart? Or are you going to do that which is 
very precious in God's sight. That's what we're called to. Are we committed to that? Husbands and dads, the most valuable and most precious things you can give to your wife and your daughters are not pretty dresses, jewelry, or even the latest gadgets. The most valuable thing that you must give to your ladies in your life is the desire to love and fear the Lord Jesus with all their heart. This is what we're called to. And this is a very difficult thing to do. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later. Thirdly, I want you to notice verses 5 and 6, this example that's being set before us. We see here, finally, this example of what it looks like to give submission to one's husband. Verse 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Verse 5 speaks more generally of an example of ladies who were, as it's called here, holy women, generically, of the Old Testament. Most of us would know their names. You are aware and you know the stories of Rebecca and Ruth and Hannah. Holy women who were adorning themselves with the hope of God. Most of us would recognize them. Why would, why would these ladies be called holy women? Why are they called holy women in our text here? Why were they called holy women in the Old Testament? What was the common distinguishing characteristic of the ladies that are considered holy women? How did the holy women of old adorn themselves? Our passage tells us. All of them adorned themselves with this characteristic. And this is really the main emphasis that all the entire text hangs on, all, all seven verses here this morning. All seven verses hang on this particular phrase. This is the characteristic of these holy women. They adorn themselves with a hope in God. Do you see that there? The holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves in this way. Wives, here this morning, I want you to know how you might be faithful to submit yourself to your husband. How might you be faithful to submit yourself to your husband? If I ask you to, if I encourage you in that direction, I want to encourage you now that being submissive to your husband doesn't mean that you try harder, that you keep your house more clean, that you make the kids less crazy, that you have more energy or joy, or that you are more physically attractive more often in the day. Nor will I encourage you to be so submissive and passive that you simply agree to whatever your husband asks you to do. That isn't what submission is. No, submission is this, and we have the example before us. The example is of these Old Testament holy women, and it is this. They adorned themselves with this in their eyes. This is what they focused on. This is what they desired. This is what they wanted. These women hoped in their God. And by doing so, they were able to submit to their own husbands. We see that there in verse 5. Now, this is a very difficult calling, as I've mentioned before. So Peter does not leave this generic example of just generally women in the Old Testament, these holy women in the Old Testament. But then he turns in verse 6 and he says, let me give you a specific example so that you can be clear of what I mean here. So that you're not making up things or imagining things about these women. He points specifically to Sarah in verse 6. And notice what it says. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord... And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. The example of Sarah is so helpful for us. Because when we read 
Genesis 11 through 23. She didn't start out with Sarah, right? She started out with Sarai. And then her name was changed to Sarah. Genesis 11 through 23, you'll read about the life of Sarah. At the very beginning of Genesis 23, it says that Sarah died. If you remember a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that Abraham didn't even have a place to bury her because he was an exile and sojourner in the land. 11 through 23, if you read about Sarah's life, you find out that she would not be considered perfect by any standard that anyone would set for a wife, in the church or outside the church. We see both... We see both the promise that she trusted in as well as the fact that she was weak and feeble in her faith in our passage that we had this morning. We see both of these in the very place that we see where she actually refers to her husband, Abraham. This is the only place that she refers to Abraham as Lord. And so this is obviously where she's speaking of, and this is in Genesis 18 that Avera read for us this morning. Just as clear as we see here, this hoping in the promise to fulfill, that God, that God must fulfill in our life, we see here in our passage. Genesis 18, 9, listen to Sarah's faith. And I want you to notice that it was a fluttering faith. It was a feeble faith. It was a, a laughing faith. And yet it was a real, a real faith and hope in God. So listen with me. As I read again, Genesis 18, 9, the three men said to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he, Abraham, said, she is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself. And this is what she was saying according to the scriptures. After I am worn out and my Lord is old. That was her reference to Abraham as Lord. And my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? And then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? The Lord is asking Abraham, why is your wife laughing about this promise that I made to you and her? And the Lord says this to Abraham, and Sarah is obviously listening because she's there at the door. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you, says the Lord, but this time next, by this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. The Lord knows our hearts. Now, that might not be the most sound, unwavering, confident, facing, the, the daunting struggle with a fierce faith that you thought Sarah should be exemplifying. Sarah's hope didn't sound like she was fixed and firm, unwavering, never willing to, to laugh or question or be concerned. Sarah's hope probably sounded much more like your hope and your faith 
when you are busy in your home trying to do the things that you need to do and the Lord comes and says, remind you of a promise in his word. Sarah's faith like yours is likely fluttering and fearful, weary and burdened under the daily details of life. This is the kind of hope and faith that Sarah had. And this is the kind of hope and faith that Peter is saying is an example to us. But even with this feeble kind of faith, even in this feeble kind of faith, many of you refuse to allow daily and arresting fears to make you hopeless. In fact, the very fact that you're sitting here this morning means that you, didn't over, you weren't overcome by fear and hopelessness this morning. You got out of bed and you faced the day and you came here to be a part of your congregation. Instead, you step into another day believing the good promises of your God, probably more like Sarah. Man, I hope it's true. I'm just not all that sure. I believe. Help my unbelief. These arresting fears of hopelessness, fixed now on your God and the Lord Jesus Christ, hoping in Him and what He said is going to be true, and you do good. For all of those that are around you, you serve tirelessly because your God has called you to love and serve those people that are around you in your life, in your home, your husband, your children, and those that God has put around you today. And you'll do it tomorrow. And you'll do it every single day for the days ahead that the Lord has given to you. So women in this room, in this building, wives, Young ladies, little girls that are here with us this morning, take Sarah by the arm and go with her to the promised Canaan land. Use her as an example. And remember that this is not all that's said about Sarah in 1 Peter. That's not all that was said about Sarah in in Genesis 18. Instead, Sarah, precious Sarah, shows up In Hebrews 11, listen to this lady's faith as the preacher in Hebrews commends it to us. By faith, Hebrews 11, 11, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age. Why? Since she considered him faithful who had promised. Did you hear that? Not because of her ability, because she considered him who is faithful, who promised her. Therefore, from one man, that's Abraham, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. This is by faith of a lady that laughed. These all died in faith, including Sarah, died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. We see the promises of God when we look in God's Word. And we say, no matter what my world and circumstances around me may say, I'm going to trust what God's Word says. I'm going to see them and I'm going to cling to them, though I may not have them now. They greeted them from afar. 
and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Hebrews eleven sixteen. But as it is, they desired a better country. Did you hear that? Their hope was somewhere else. Sarah's hope was somewhere else. It wasn't in, their, in the land. It wasn't in their, her body. It wasn't in her circumstances. It was somewhere else. As it is, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. Wives are to be subject. Point number two, husbands are to be understanding. Verse seven, only one verse, but let's look together at it. Let's turn now and notice that Peter is calling these husbands to a certain task and giving them a cause that will motivate them to be the husbands God's called them to be. First, I want you to notice the calling of this understanding husband. The focus here has been on the wives because Peter has sought to instruct specifically these wives who are seeking to live faithfully in a very difficult circumstance. But now he turns to these husbands and he says to the husbands, obviously those who are believing husbands, but also unbelieving husbands, this applies as well. We are, verse 7, to live, likewise husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women to the woman as the weaker vessel. You can see here two areas are to, we are to consider as we live with our wives. You first are to live with your wives in an understanding way. Another translation says, dwell with them according to knowledge. Another translation says, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Now, I guarantee you there's men here right now that are making this far more complicated than it needs to be. You're just trying, you're trying to fix it, guys. Listen, don't make this more complicated than it is. The point here is this. You need to know the heart of your wife. Now, when I say that, I don't mean you need to know her favorite color, her favorite restaurant, or her favorite balloon, right? That doesn't matter. What I'm saying here is, the, the point here is that you need to Know the heart of your wife. That requires time. Man, that's going to require time. Yes, this means you're going to have to set aside a lot of the things that you're doing and give yourself to give time to your wife. And this time makes it even more harder, not only for the purpose of listening, which is hard enough, but even more, as our text says, we're to move beyond simply listening and understanding our wives. Listening and understanding are two different things. You need to understand that. Understanding means that you have a grasp or an understanding of your wife's heart, her fears, her loves, her troubles, the passages in the Bible that she struggles with, the areas that she is apt to idolatry. You need to be the person who is calling her to faith in unique and specific ways. You need to know her according to this passage. This word for know or knowledge is an understanding of a deep, profound knowledge. You need to be able to look at your wife and know what she's thinking. Understand what she's understanding. You need to be sitting in a room and saying, my wife's ready to go. And not have her ask you ten times, are you ready to go? Right? 
There are two problems with this understanding. Here's the two problems. Problem number one, you're a sinner. Problem number two, she's a sinner. So this is going to be difficult. It's not going to be easy. Nobody wants to sit and listen and communicate and talk. Nobody that's male in this room anyway. But that's what God's called us to. Called us to serve and love our wives well. And that's just a starting place. Much of it, however, lands on the fact for many of us as men, we're so passive that we don't want to put in the work to actually lovingly understand our wives. Part of this is because there's not an, a high score to obtain. There's not a crosshairs that you can get pointed at. There's not a basket or a home base to tag. There's not an end zone to fight for. Do you understand what I'm saying here? In other words, too many of you men have spent too much of your life playing games. And so when you translate over to your spouse, you think that you can treat your wife in the same way. Your wife, your wife is not a game or recreation. She's an image bearer of God that was, according to Scripture, perfectly fitted for you as a helper. Do not treat her like something trite and entertaining. Therefore, she is much more complicated, stunning, wonderful, and satisfying than any boy game that you're continuing to play even though you should, you're a man. Put the games aside. God intended for us to love our wives well, and he's given us the equipment to do it. It's hard. It means we have to die of ourselves. Nobody likes to do that, but we need to. This is why you're called to understand her. I can actually hear some of your thoughts right now. I've heard them. You said them out loud, and I know you're thinking it right now. My wife doesn't think logically. When we talk, she's talking about things that I just have no idea why she's even saying what she's saying. None of them even make any sense. I've heard these things before. Let me explain. Your wife is not a math problem. She is not something to be solved or to be fixed. Before you were married, she acted like it was the most fascinating and wonderful thing when you talked and you shared your ideas and you had such wonderful arguments when you were able to make theological precise arguments and, and talk and make things. And it, was, it fascinated her. The solutions you gave were so perfect and amazing. But now you're just annoying when you do that. Let me help you. You were always annoying. She was being nice before you were married. You were always annoying. When she starts to talk, she's not wanting you to cross-examine everything you say, or she says. She's not wanting you to cross-examine everything she says. Nor is it a virtue, men, when you can stop her midway through what she's saying and say, I've got the solution, just sit there and let me tell you because I don't have time to listen to the rest of what you're saying. That's not a virtue. You think that's, why well, I, I did this quick. I'm efficient. Let's move on. No, 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 no. You, you messed up royally. All right? That's not a virtue. Set yourself to spend the rest of your life to understand the gift that the Lord has given you and your wife. Apart from your communion with God, hear me, men. 
apart from your communion with God in Christ, all other interests that you will have for the rest of your life will come and go. Except for this calling to understand your wife, it will bear fruit until the last day of your or her life. All other interests will wane and come and go. Now, I need to say this as well, simply because I've sat with so many of you and talked with you concerning marriage. Real quick, um, it says here very clearly uh, in our passage, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. All right? So, let me, ex- let me help here a little bit because this is confusing to some people. Your husband can understand you and yet disagree with you. You do know that, ladies, right? So, just because... Your husband says, no, I don't agree. That doesn't mean he doesn't understand. That's that's very difficult. I I realize that. He may understand perfectly but disagree with you. That doesn't mean I need to continue to talk so that there can be clear understanding. Because if he understood what I understood, then definitely he would agree with me. Maybe not. Okay? So understanding and agreement are two different things. Important to understand that. When we commend this understanding of our wives, it doesn't mean we need to continue to listen until we agree. Because sometimes we can't or we shouldn't. Now, study her. Seek to love her well. Not only, not only study, but also understand her. But it also says in our text to honor her. Do you see that there in verse 7? Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. The term weaker vessel likely is speaking primarily of the fact that the woman is usually not the physically most strong one in the home. And uh, that's been the case, and that is currently being the case uh, throughout history of, of humanity. Um, that's typically the case. She's the weaker vessel in that regard. Physically, she's not as strong. And so she is physically more apt to be um, set aside and not considered in the home. And so here it says, honor her in this way. This gives us a clue then to how at least we are to begin to honor our wives. We are then to begin with to defend them, to protect them, to provide for them. These are the primary responsibilities that Adam was given for Eve in the garden before sin even even entered the world. He was to care for her, defend her, protect her, provide for her in that way. We give honor when we are thankful often to our wives for the way they bless us. Seek to say outwardly that the nod of the head and the grunt isn't thankful. that's That's not thank you. I know you mean that, but that's not what it actually comes across to your wife as. Verbally saying thank you to your wife regularly is the way you can honor her. And not just generically, but for specific things. We honor our wives when we point them to Christ and encourage them to be the faithful woman that God's called them to be. We honor our wives when we pray for them and with them often. And when we pray with them, they need to hear us, men, thanking the Lord for them and pleading to the Lord for the Lord to meet their needs, their fears, their concerns, their weaknesses, the things they struggle and their callings with. Now, how can you pray that? Unless you understand them, right? You've got to understand them before you can begin praying in that way. The way we learn to understand and honor our wives, finally, comes not so much by being taught as caught. What I mean by that is this. We are put, as I mentioned a minute ago about the ladies growing in this particular area, men as well. There are more mature men who have been married for longer periods of time than other of you who have been men. You need to 
ask these mature men into your life. You need to watch these men as they seek to faithfully love their spouses well. Ask them to pray for you about specific things and then actually ask for counsel from them. All right? Um, the us, I'm going to put myself in this category, us old men are less apt to go to you and say, let me talk to you about your marriage. You need to come to, come to the men, the older men, and say, can you give me input into this? Okay? Now, older men, we are called to invest in the younger men. And if, again, you're, you're spending a lot of your time doing things that are far less important than doing this, and that is helping young men be faithful in our world today to understand and to honor their wives well. So watch them, pray, ask them to pray for you, get counsel from the men that are in our congregation that they can speak into your life. Now, all of this is really, there's specifics that I mentioned, and and some of them are even amusing because it's true, how we try to relate, and it's very difficult. I understand that. I've sat with many of you as you seek to be faithful in your marriage, and I know you want to be, but it's still hard. Just because you're a Christian doesn't make it not hard. Just because you're trying to be faithful doesn't make it not hard. Is there a picture? Like, here's all these concepts, here's all these ideas, here's all these practices, but is there something that I can, I can just picture, that I can see before my eyes and say, if that's what I'm after, then I, can, then I can really go after it. If I have a picture or an illustration of what the Lord wants me to do, how the Lord wants me to be a husband, I'm glad you asked, because there is a picture. Let me read it for you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. He's understanding her. He's honoring her in this way. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Verse 7 at the end. You see how Peter closes here? He wants to first help us see the eternal value of the gift that we have in our wives. It says there in verse 7, it says, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now the reason he mentions that is because up to this point for the last six, seven verses, we've noticed the distinctions between wives and husbands. They're different. They have roles. They have different responsibilities, different callings. And yet there is something similar about them, and that is that they both are heirs of the grace of life. They're both standing before God one day, and they're both image bearers of God. So you both, husband and wife, will stand before the Lord Jesus one day. And if you both are in Christ, you will both equally receive the rich reward of being hidden with Christ in God and receive your promised reward equally. At the resurrection, both you and your wife, Lord willing, will be raised up in glory, shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed both in soul and body in the full enjoyment of God to all eternity. Where is your hope? Where is your hope? That's where it should be. 
Don't overlook this last line because it's very short or don't think lightly of it. Peter here is warning us men that if we don't live with our wives in an understanding way or honor them as we ought, then there are eternally significant consequences that isn't just that your wife and you aren't on good terms, but it actually is speaking of your relationship with the Lord himself. If you are at odds with your wife, then make it right. If there is sin, then confess the sin and ask for forgiveness. That's not some general thing. If you need me to help you and point you in the direction of what specifically that looks like, I'll be glad to do that. If there is sin in your marriage, confess the sin and then ask for forgiveness and then grant forgiveness. If there's been too much sin over too many years, then find another couple in this congregation and ask them to help you begin walking toward restoration and faithfulness. It is that important. Why is it that important? Because the result of this is not just that the two of you sit in two different rooms for hours on your devices every night before you go to bed. I hope that hits where it needs to. No, the real problem, husband, is that your prayers before the Heavenly Father are being hindered. One of the first things you can do as a husband to move in the right direction is today before you go to bed tonight is to pursue, to understand, and honor your wife by asking her if you can pray with her and you two pray together. And if you are not or have given up on understanding and honoring your wife, then I would suspect that your prayers for her are very little or not at all. And if they're not at all, then know this, you will never have the relationship with your wife nor with your God that you should have. Do not deceive yourselves. You are not okay with the Lord, no matter how impossible your wife may be, if you're not right with your wife. So today, each of us have, I think, a very clear ability to understand how we can pray for each other. We know how to, as a congregation, pray when we go through the prayer directory in our church, all the directory with all the families and all the different people that are in there. We can be praying for the wives. We can be praying for the husbands. We can be praying for one another. We can be praying for those who are pursuing marriage, for those who are supporting and encouraging marriage. We know now how to pray and encourage one another in this way. And let me end with this. It's the doxology for Peter himself at the end of 1 Peter chapter 5. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. And God's people said, amen. Let us pray together. Would you bow your heads?